Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the God. This is God's word to us. Thanks. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, I'm, as Josh said, I'm Matthew Arbo. Um, I'm one of the lay elders here downtown. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, we're not. My family's usually in the nine o'clock service, so it's probably likely that you and I uh, haven't met because we're so regularly here. But I'm really glad to be with you. The eleven o'clock, holding it down. Um, work. Right? How is work a rhythm of grace? How is work a rhythm of grace? Um, when, I, when I started thinking about work, and really almost any time I, I think about work and teaching about it or preaching about it, I end up thinking about my own past work experience, which is atrocious. I was told pretty early on that if I wanted anything, especially like a car or something else important, like just money to spend, I was going to have to work. So I had a job when I was 15 years old. My surprise, I actually worked on the dock of a wholesale uh, NASCAR like, uh, memorabilia distributor. Uh, which is possibly one of the most ironic jobs I could have had. The next job was at an auto oil lube place, which I was fired from for hitting a car. Um, and then that was, that was not totally my fault. Um, I've worked at a concession stand at the zoo next to the prairie dog pit. Uh, in fact, that, that's the, that zoo wasn't, it, it's not a really sophisticated zoo. It had a prairie dog pit. So it's not like, <clears throat> it wasn't very populated. It wasn't a lot of people. Uh, I've had lots of terrible jobs. When I started doing my PhD um, in the UK, I was working, I did a lot of research in the early modern period, and so I'd read a lot of weird books and weird texts, and uh, I learned that there were far worse jobs than working in the concession stand next to the prairie dog pit. Um, a couple of them that I thought were pretty striking, uh, one was called a wool, a wool fuller. Okay, wool fuller, um, it, probably not heard of this job, it's not in the classified section, it doesn't come up on LinkedIn. When you, when you search for it. Uh, during the height of the Middle Ages, when wool was in its highest demand, uh, at the time actually wheat, sheep outnumbered people 15 to 1, which is kind of scary. But uh, what the wool fuller would do would gather up the wool that had been sheared, and their job was to clean and purify and to bleach it, essentially. And the way to do that was to step on it and mash it in a substance all day. Well, at the time, the best, it was believed the best substance you could use to purify it was stale urine. So they would, I know, so you would use this stale urine to mash it out, and the wool fuller would do that all day long. They would step in this vat of urine and clean and purify and bleach the wool, okay? Um, presumably, they washed it again afterwards, so not everybody smelled like the, what the wool was there, but that, that's, that's what they did. Uh, another pretty bad job was called the tallow chandler. Okay, a tallow chandler had a very narrow purpose, and all they were to do... Uh, was collect animal fat, and sometimes human fat, uh, because that's what was used to make candles. All right? So uh, in order to make candles, you need to collect this animal fat, purify it, clean it, and then prepare it to be used in a pour. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't very pleasant work, um, and you, know, you always had grease on you, and you, you were dealing with animal fat all the time. Not a, not a really great experience. Um, I just mentioned those two because they're maybe a little bit worse than your job, no matter <laughs> what you're doing. 
Uh, so we have a tendency to kind of uh, amplify the, how bad our work is, you know? I mean, anybody, anytime we hear someone complaining about how jo- bad their job is, we have this sort of visceral, like, like they, don't, they don't really know how good they have it. You know, there's always a sense of, like, one-upmanship about how bad it really, really is, and a sense of competition about who really has the worst work, who really has it so bad that they have it worse than anybody else. And this kind of weird sense of, like, having, ba- having it bad and it being really terrible for you is a pretty common attitude. Um, and it's hard not to be seduced by that attitude of thinking of work purely as a kind of drudgery. It's just irksome. It's just hard. And this is all that we have. This is just something we have to bear. And it is something we have to bear. But it isn't just that. It isn't only drudgery. Um, I'm going to give some historical backgrounds. But in the way of kind of just prompting us to what we're going to be talking about, uh, it's best just to say just right from the start that work is a rhythm of grace in that through our toil, through our toil, God meets us and conforms us to the image of his son, conforms us to Christ, okay? So it's a rhythm of grace in that through our toil, through our labor, God in Jesus meets us and conforms us to the image of Jesus. That's the basic idea. That's the basic idea that Paul carries in the letter to the church at Thessalonians and elsewhere. So let's get some background and we'll talk more about how we receive our work from God and offer it back to God. Okay, so it's easy to forget that it's only been within like the last 100 to 150 years that we had a choice over what we get to do for our life. You know, it was always handed. History, the history of human labor is a often uh, very awful and cruel and um, oppressive and difficult and existentially threatening story. I mean, uh, what we have achieved in the modern age to kind of cancel some of the nature's contingencies to kind of get control over things we previously had no control over, think of disease as one obvious example, is pretty incredible. It's, it's incredible what uh, we have achieved technically, socially, over the course of the modern age. But, but, you know, go back 150 years, and you did whatever your dad did, right? If Mr. Smith was a smith, then you were a smith, you know, you know, it wasn't like you go to Mr. Smith one day, he's like, look, Dad, that's cool and all, but I, I actually, I think I'm going to go into law, right? That just doesn't happen. You don't get to do that. You get slapped and you're told to go back out and start, go back to the anvil and pound, pound that metal again, right? It's, and that's just the nature of, the, of commercial society at the time, right up until, you know, three or four or five generations ago. You do what you were trained to do by your family and who your family had prospects with. Uh, it's so easy to forget that. So, there's so much opportunity now. In fact, there's so much opportunity. My, my previous work uh, for 10 years was as a professor, and I advise lots of students. And some students know what they're going to do with great confidence, and some have absolutely no idea what they're going to do because there's so many things they could do. They could be a veterinarian. They could be a marine biologist. They could be a writer. They could be any number of things. They're kind of paralyzed by the range of possibilities, and that's a, that's a real thing especially for young people trying to figure out what do they want to do, what they most like, what could make the most difference. So much has changed so quickly, it's easy to kind of get, uh, get, get, to, you know, get a sense of like, it's hard to just honestly re- recollect just what's happened, how much life has changed. Just take this as a couple of examples, okay? So it's not just that we now have the opportunity to choose what we do. Workers have, in the last several decades, migrated from the countryside to cities in search of better employment, Women are, closer, are, are as close as ever to men in equalizing the overall share of the workforce. Family life has been uh, radically reshaped as we struggle to draw meaningful and enduring contrasts between home and office. 
That might just be me, but if it's also you, then take solace, because at least it's me and maybe a couple of other people having a tough time drawing meaningful distinctions between home and work or home and office, or drawing meaningful distinctions and contrast between work and rest. When are we resting, and have we truly rested? Are we giving ourselves to that? We, we struggle to do that. The economic demands for maximal efficiency, giving everything we can, doing, everything, doing all we can, uh, those demands on labor are ultimately transmitted to children, rewriting the norms for family life. And likewise, modern technology has increased, the, uh, has increased productivity in all kinds of remarkable ways and has also reduced the need for uh, the level of physical exertion required to produce the same amount, you know, however many decades ago. Incredible uh, accomplishments. But that has only had the also, that has also carried the effect of making work hard in new ways, right? So we may have made work easier in one respect, but actually made it harder in another respect. Right? So uh, I, I, I make the joke that uh, one of the worst things you can possibly do to me is send me an email with a spreadsheet attached. I mean, I hate Excel. Excel is the best evidence there is that Satan is very real. <laughs> it's awful. There's never a time I've opened that program and felt, yes, yes. This is the work I'm meant for. Some of you are like that. God bless you. For like some of you love spreadsheets. Word processors, no thank you. Spreadsheets, all day long. I don't know how. But that's just a sign of God's eclectic creation. <laughs> there are people who can do that stuff. So it makes work hard in new ways. Modern commercial society is also driven by forces that are even discomfitting to work itself. And these are newer phenomenon. Just a quick um, quotation here from a theologian named Oliver O'Donovan. Led by a false antithesis that conceived work merely as the price to be paid for the satisfactions of leisure, we continue to plan, by research and artificial intelligence and in other ways, for a world in which as few people as possible will have any work to do. Uh, and there, there is a reality that we've actually, in our ingenious uh, innovations, created less work for people to do, or changed the work so substantially that it's not even meaningful for them anymore. They're not making anything, they just operate. They just function. Uh, there are uh, consequences for all these innovations. And again, some, some of these developments are positive, some negative. But it's nevertheless changed the way we think about work and how we do our work. So we're prone to extremes. We're prone to extremes of overwork. And we're prone to extremes of idleness. Right? So we're working too much or too little. So that brings us in setting a context okay, that just sort of names some of the challenges that we face. doesn't comprehend them, but it just gives you a sort of taxonomy. That's when we can turn to the passage in Thessalonians, right? Because it happens that these people 2,000 years removed from us were getting a message, a word that we also need to receive. So in this letter that we've had read from, uh, part of it we've had read from uh, Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. So Paul does a couple things, but in the passage that we read and in two other places, so later on in that first letter and then again at the end of his second letter to the Thessalonians, he actually takes up that, that caution and warning against idleness. He repeats it three different times. He doesn't do that in any of his other letters in the way that he does with them. It's a real concern for reasons we'll talk about. And in the second letter, it's pretty clear. He gives three times as much space to idleness as though to say, like, didn't you hear what I said about the idleness part in the first letter? You know, so he's making it very clear that this is what they need to do. They don't need to ignore it. There's a, we don't know exactly why he focuses on this as a theme, but we have a, scholars have a couple of reasons, and I think both of these are pretty plausible. The first is that many in the church there, this early church, had felt that Jesus' return was imminent. That's pretty common. This happens in Corinth, too. Paul writes to them about it. They think, 
Jesus is coming soon. I don't, need, I don't need to work. I mean, which is a pretty interesting attitude to take, right? Like if Christ's coming soon, like, why bother? Let's, get, let's have fun. I mean, he's coming. That's not, that's not what Paul quite means, right? Um, and there's something there in the context because Paul immediately after the passage we read talks about those who are departed and what will life eternal really mean. Another suggestion, it's not the one that Christ's return is imminent, is that some in that church had come under the benefit, the financial benefit of a wealthy patron. And so they were being financially supported and didn't need to work any longer, and so they didn't. It's likely that the community is populated by both kinds, folks that really don't think they have to work because Christ is coming, and those that don't work because they're supported by somebody and so they don't have to. And kind of irrespective of what that proportion is, the result is the same. Paul's response is singular. God, uh, excuse me, good work is an expression of love and represents Christ to the world. Good work is an expression, an exercise of love, because the context of the passage is brotherly love, and represents Christ to the world. So notice this. In addition to what Paul says, working with our hands, being diligent in our work, he has two other things that are expressions of love. Living quietly, all right, living quietly, and of uh, minding our own affairs. Living quietly and minding our own affairs. And it's a number of things that could mean, but at least one of the things they mean is that not being loud and not uh, getting ourselves into other people's business. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's not a hard teaching. You don't have to, like, turn it inside out for its meaning. Here's what it is. To express love is simply in a way to kind of gather it, encompass it. It's being peaceable, being people of gentleness, working diligently, representing Christ to others. This is what happens in being disciples as far as Paul is concerned. If you are a disciple, here's what you will do. You will live quietly and you won't live in like boisterousness, right? Don't be loud, braggadocious. Simple living, quiet living. You mind your own business, right? I said something like this before, like other people's lives are exhausting, right? Sometimes they, sometimes they need our attention, but not everything needs our attention, right? So much is presented for us to care about. We can't care about everything. We just can't. We can't care about everyone. We're given a set number of things we can care about, that we can invest ourselves in, that we give our loves to, right? We cannot possibly care about everything. So we need to mind our own business, mind our own affairs. What is that? It is what God has given to you to do. What is one of the things that God has given? One of the things God has principally given you to do is to work, right? Now, let me say, work is hard. It's toilsome, and it's full of drudgery. Tomorrow's Monday, maybe you're already like, man, <laughs> right? Like, don't talk about it just yet, <laughs> right? It's not even afternoon. And that's how it is. There's, a, there's just an essential drudgery to a lot of our work. We have to do it, right? A few of us will get up in the morning and, you know, happily and skip to the coffee pot or not even need coffee and skip to work. Not, not a few of us are in that sort of position. So Paul's response gives us a clear shape of what love expresses in ordinary life as a disciple. Representing Christ faithfully to the world involves living quietly and minding our own affairs and of working. Now, a comment here on the very last part of that passage, which he says is being dependent on no one. Okay, being dependent on no one. He mentions it in 2 Thessalonians 2. And here's what Paul's getting at, okay? By, that, by being dependent on no one, he means that that's for all able Christians and implies that contributing to the good of others 
through our work bears witness in a way that undue dependence upon generosity of others does not. So to clarify here, what Paul's saying is like, if some, for individuals who have intellectual disabilities or impairments or physical disabilities or impairments and who cannot work, it's not like Paul's saying like, oh, they've messed up, right? We're talking about, Paul's talking about people for whom work is totally possible. They, have, they are able in mind and body and could work and who refuse to. It's pretty obviously what Paul's about because the wider ethic of the church is always to care for those who are hurt and wounded, right? I mean, the, the early church just sort of dwarfs us in its openness to others and the help of others that it gives to those particularly with disabilities, right? Uh, so those who are disabled who cannot work are supported by the work of those who can in joy, in joy. So the being dependent on no one has specifically to do with those who do not need to be dependent and could be otherwise because that has an effect on how others see Christ represented in the world, right? So there's always that missional and witness element to it. So we need to clarify then what the concept of vocation is. There's lots of talks that talk about vocation. It's a, it's a really common concept to come up in discussions about work. What is a vocation? Well, if you haven't ever heard that before, this idea of a vocation, it just has to do with uh, calling. That's where the word comes from, uh, the Latin ter- term vocatio, which just means to call. So a vocation is a calling. And a calling comes and issues from God and invites trust and service. It's really simple. God calls us to trust him and to serve him, uh, to join in his life. One of the most vivid examples you'll think of is in the Gospels when Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, hey, stop what you're doing and come on, and they do that. That's a, that's a perfect example of a call. Jesus is calling them to himself, and they go. So in the Gospels, Jesus calls, notice, he calls the disciples from their work to a new work, right? To a new task, which is discipleship. And then he will commission them out to do what he has empowered them to do, right? So calling isn't, isn't coterminous, vocation isn't coterminous with work, okay? Our work is encompassed by our calling. They clarify that, okay? Our calling, in that sense, transcends, it surpasses and encompasses our work. So in other words, because we are called by God in Christ, we are called, our, our, work, our work is understood as received from God and its fruits are offered to God. So in other words, vocation is, is our work, but it encompasses all of our life, right? We are called to service in Christ Jesus. One of the things we do is work because we have other tasks and roles that we occupy, a parent, a sibling, right, a family member, a friend, whatever. And we recognize that those roles have different levels of responsibility and duty associated with them. So if work is part of what it means to have a vocation, I would say a couple of things here. That work is hard and not having work is also hard. Like being underemployed or unemployed is really hard. If you're in a spot, I'd just say from just Strictly pastoral point of view, if, if, if you're in a place where work is just burying you and you just can't breathe inside because of how suffocated you feel by it, because of how just dehumanizing it is, or you, you simply feel the strain of not having had the work that you need to survive, that you just can't make ends meet, or the work is just not enough, or it's too volatile or too unpredictable, that, I want to say that you, there are, that is a very common human experience, and, I do, and it may not come as but so much encouragement, but I want to encourage you, God in Christ is with you and knows of your plight and is, uh, is 
there amidst your suffering and wants to see you through. And that the work, that whatever suffering and difficulty and what seems like just the deepest affliction there may be in that work is actually part of being human itself, that there's just a toil and a suffering that's born in work. It's a different suffering than having it, not having it all together. And that's partly because we recognize that there's an inherent dignity to work. Right? We recognize that it's important not just for ourselves but for other people that we work. We take, our, we, you know, we take our place in the world among others, specifically outside our families, through our work. So let me come back to that very simple idea that, it's, uh, that we receive our work from God and we offer it to God. That's the basic message of Thessalonians in that section and, the, and passages in, sec- in the second letter. We receive our work from God and we offer it to God. So for the first idea here is that work is a sign of our creatureliness and our sinfulness. Okay? Work is a sign of our creatureliness and our sinfulness. We were created to work. Adam is working the garden. He works. He's tending the garden. He's naming the animals. It isn't unexerted. He's working. What happens after the fall when God says after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, God says that it's from the sweat of your brow you will earn your food. So, In other words, what's happened is that now work is how you survive. Before in, the, in paradise, Adam and he had all they needed. Work wasn't necessary for their substance. They had God. They had all they needed. But in the fall, the curse of the fall, one of the elements of that curse is that they now have to toil. We all have to toil to survive. Work is our means of subsistence. And for the vast majority of human history, that's, that was an absolute fact, right? And it's only in the modern age that we've gotten to a place where there's so, much, there's so much abundance that we can imagine not working and still being okay, right? And that's for complicated reasons. But we have to work to survive. That's the curse for the sweat of our own brow. So work is an obligation. Everyone has to engage in it. And the vast majority of people want to do it. Maybe they, there's varying levels of dissatisfaction or frustration with work, but nevertheless, we have to do it. We should likewise refrain from idealizing and romanticizing work. We should refrain from idealizing and romanticizing work. There's one thing, it's one thing to have aspirations and to want to progress, say, in our career or to move up the ladder in some particular respect. We want, because we want to give more expansive range to our capacities. We want more responsibility. We want to achieve more. We want to have more influence, whatever it is. We have sometimes perfectly understandable and justified appetites and wants. But that's different from turning our vocation or our career into a kind of personal quest or personal achievement which doesn't have any further purpose for anybody else's life. It's just an endeavor to sort of self-create. It's just an endeavor to sort of amplify our own competence to others or just pure vanity, which is what the author of Ecclesiastes constantly refers to. Because there's plenty of work which is just for ourselves or just to bolster our own reputation that really is just that. It's just vanity. We call vainglory. So we should refuse and excuse me, refrain from uh, idealizing or romanticizing work. We'll often romanticize work that isn't ours. So we don't have, we don't have problems romanticizing our own work. We romanticize other people's work. So that the, that kind of job seems a whole lot better than our job, even though we don't know anything about it except, you know, what we see from time to time, right? 
It's easy to romanticize work that isn't ours, especially when we're dissatisfied, especially when it's really crappy, right? When it's the absolute worst, that's the time when, like, now's time I've got to get, I got to stop, right? That's a hard decision. I can say that someone, I just made a really dramatic change from one sector to another this time last year. And I can tell you, even a year removed, that's been really hard, and I had no idea how hard it was going to be. It's hard for anybody that goes through that. Right? If you want to get a picture on where you are, suppose you have a st- stable career, right? You've been in a good spot. If suddenly your role, that role, that title you occupy was taken from you, how would you feel about your place among others? That question gives you a really helpful line of sight to, other, to how you really are attached to what you do. How much of our heart is committed to the role that we occupy. Okay? And it it can be very subtle. We tell ourselves all kinds of important stories about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And when we get right down to it, what we often find is that we're idolatrous about our roles. We've attached too much to them and don't really envisage them as being for the good of the kingdom or to the the good of our community, to our family. It's easy to romanticize work. Work is something we do as someone who is called. So we're commanded to work, and so therefore idleness is condemned. And that's put in the strongest possible terms in the New Testament. Idleness is condemned. Here's the main reason. Because it's with idleness, that's the entry point. That's the portal for all kinds of temptation. When we're at work, temptations are pretty few and far between, in part because we're not focusing on that stuff. We're focusing on completing our task. When we're not working and when we are just idle, I don't mean resting, that's different. Resting and idleness are two different things. Idleness is just a refusal to work. Rest is the completion of work. Okay? Let's talk more about this next week. It's a compliment to work. Idleness is just the refusal to work. It can take all kinds of guises. The most slippery and elusive is escapism. Work is really hard. I need to detach. Totally understandable. I've been there, right? It's an entirely cathartic thing. I just need to not focus on anything at all. I need to do that. That's a, that's a form of idleness, right? There's a way of max, there's taking that too far where we're just meant to, what are, you, what are you saying? We have to be industrious all the time that we can never, ever stop when there's a set time in the day? That's not quite what I'm saying, right? And neither is the New Testament. The idea, though, is, to, is about the attitude that we take towards our work and whether we're given to forms of idleness into, in escaping that work, right? In other words, are we trying to escape reality itself? Are we trying to escape the responsibilities we have towards others like our family or our community? Are we trying to escape the meaning that's, being, uh, that's associated with the work that we really do undertake? So idleness breeds temptation of all kinds, not just in career or in work. Work is satisfying, but it isn't... Um, now, I'm going to move along here. But we, we're not only transformed the natural world through work, adapting it to need, but our ourselves, uh, we find fulfillment in work. To put this another way, so not only do we, through our work, in a way, modestly transform the natural world, and there's, I've already mentioned how, how dramatic the changes in the natural world have been in the modern era, and we all have our own modest contributions to that, but we also, through our work, end up being transformed ourselves. Um, it is gratifying to do something well and see it finished. Like, we fixed that thing which is not very often for me. So when I do fix something at the house, I kind of got to make sure everybody knows, you know, that I fixed it. I mean, what, is it finished if I haven't gone and told my wife that it's fixed? You know, I can't just fix it. She needs to know. 
that it's fixed and we didn't have to pay for somebody to come out and do it. Right? Otherwise, it's not really fully fixed. Right? There's all kinds of things that we do. That there's something inherently satisfying about that to actually finish and see that it's done. That's, really, that's not something that we all get to benefit. I just want to recognize that. Some of us don't finally get to see that the work we did here came out over here as this. It was this product or this service or this contract satisfied or whatever because we're so removed. That's the nature of modern business. I'm not, you know, I'm not offering some big critique. It's just to say that there's something to that. So where are we finding that meaning? If the meaning is not in seeing the satisfaction, it may be something more modest. It may be in today I did what I was supposed to do and I came home. That's it. Like maybe the duty that day is to go in, put in your time, right, not squeeze an extra 10 into lunch or smoke break or whatever, finish that work and go home for that day. Maybe it's not this year that your work will ever get done. Maybe you never see the sort of fruits of that labor except in the check that you get. That's a lot of us, maybe most of us. We don't finally get to see that tangible thing. That makes it work hard, as it, it makes it kind of accentuates the drudgery. But here's the thing about that, right? The calling in vocation is for us simply to uphold our responsibility because it's for others, right? And this is the part of are being called, receiving our work from God, and then offering it back to God. Okay, so that's the second part. Work is an act of love. To the extent that we diligently perform our duty in service to others and the common good. What we're doing in our work is, yeah, we're, taking, we're meeting our own needs of subsistence. Maybe we're taking care of our family. But what we're also doing in our work, because it's inherently potent, it also creates, meaning, it creates value for others. That over time can create work, still more work, so that those who do not have work can have it. Or those who may have a certain kind of work that could do more get that kind of work. In other words, it allows for a more expansive picture of what, of, of, and expands what's possible in work. By living quietly and minding our own affairs, working with our hands, we walk properly before others and are dependent upon no one. Um, work can be, can be socially transformative. And it can also, in the context of the passage that Paul mentions of working with our hands, be an exercise in brotherly love. Isn't it hard to think of it that way as work, as being loving? It's just, it seems like it's only a duty. It is that, right? But in having been a duty, just upholding that responsibility, we love Right? One of the hardest things, just anecdotally, one of the hardest things for me to give up was to give up a romanticized picture of the professorate and just figure out how to take care of my family. Like, just take care, just provide for my kids. Right? And that was a really tough recognition that that was going to require either more of me or I needed to make some changes or do something. And maybe you have your own set of circumstances. Right? That love can be a work and that that work uh, can maybe even change shape in front of our eyes. Our work is dependent upon by others. And we, like to, we recognize that the more responsibility we have, the more people who are under our authority, own a business with lots of employees, that only goes up. The people depend upon our work. Right? It's a role that we take. One reason we desire to work is that it, it, is it makes us a part of other people's worlds in unique ways. It's something that they count on. We occupy a space. We are, we're, we are colleagues with somebody. Work cannot in any way by its nature um, serve to dehumanize other people. There are limits. When we ask a question like what constitutes good work, There's, there are certain kinds of works that uh, exploit others or wrong others that are dehumanizing. 
So not, uh, but those are, those are fairly narrow. Work, crucially, is not something we possess. We don't own our jobs like pieces of property. We don't possess it. Our work is something that's given us so that we can pass that on. We endeavor in it. We undertake it. We toil so that it may be for others' benefit. So it has this inherently giving generosity to it. Work isn't a possession. We work uh, for the work and we pass that along to others. Now, work, as I said, doesn't have any meaning. It's finally meaningless if we don't bring it to completion. We need to be able to finish our task. And I've already mentioned that there's some puzzles, but the bringing to completion is really important, partly for the satisfaction, but also because it's so important to our understanding of rest. Work without completion or rest is inherently unrhythmic. Okay, I'll say that again. Work without completion or rest is inherently unrhythmic. Talk about rhythms of work, and maybe you have things that you're, you, you have repeatable. Have you ever seen, I've, I sometimes fall in these black holes on YouTube where they're seeing people that like are really gifted at one specific thing, like the, uh, the sushi chefs, the guys that I'm really impressed with, these knives that can like flay a tuna fish in like five seconds, these perfectly pink steaks, or the, the chefs that can kind of cut up garlic without, I mean, I'm so nervous about cutting garlic, so I don't know how these people do that. Am I the only one that has problems with garlic? It's like it's always sticking to your fingers, and it's just, it could have been better, right? But that, that kind of thing mesmerizes me. People who are just ultra-proficient in this particular thing. And you can think of other examples of that. People who are ultra-proficient in spreadsheets, okay? Or who know exactly how to treat patients with this particular affliction or whatever. A pastor with long experience. Rest is what we do when our work is finished. And the next day we'll pick it up. Rest is what we do on the Sabbath when our, work, our week of work is done. We really do rest. We don't use the exception, which is mentioned by Jesus, right? The ox in the cart, right? We don't use that as the exception all the time. It's the exception because it's supposed to be an emergency, right? Your livelihood and your very subsistence is under threat. It's not something you do because your email box is a little bit fuller than you'd like it. Okay? To really rest means not working. There isn't another way to construe rest so that it's a little bit of work and maybe also not, and maybe a little bit of rest too. Okay? It's not that. We rest because God himself rested. We aren't just told to do that in the way of commandment. God himself took rest. So we take rest. I'm not going to say I'm good at it. I'm terrible. Right? And perhaps you are too. It's nevertheless something we must do and it actually infuses our work with meaning. So the effect of resting is that it fundamentally transforms our work. If we don't rest, our work will only, only empty us. And gradually we will become, it will become impossible for us to exercise our vocation because we have nothing to offer. Our vocation, our work has, in other words, done so much to us, we can't help anyone anymore. It's pure drudgery. And so seeing our work as worship, seeing our work as a service to others becomes that much more difficult, if not impossible to do, because we don't have any distance on it anymore. It's totally absorbed us to our very core. Um, an older book by uh, Witold Rabinsky, who's an architecture professor in uh, McGill at Can in Canada, uh, wrote a wonderful book uh, called Waiting for the Weekend. He, says, uh, he has this wonderful line, because uh, we're so routinely terrible at rest that... Um, We've turned even our leisure into work. Hence, we've arrived at an unexpected development in the history of leisure, he says. 
For many people, weekend free time has become not a chance to escape work, but a chance to create more work that is more meaningful, to work at recreation in order to realize the personal satisfactions that the workplace no longer offers. Boy, I mean, I was stung uh, when I read that line. Because uh, uh, I could say when I, I ride my bicycle on the weekend, and I, or whenever I can, and I may say that I'd, it's not play anymore, it's training, right? Uh, Rabinsky mentions the example of people playing tennis. Instead, they've moved to working on their backhand. And there's all kinds of ways which we've turned our leisure and recreation into just another form of work, in part because we can't stop working, and in part because our work is so meaningless, we, can't, we just find whatever we can in meaning in the recreation. This just speaks to the attitudes and the ways we've been conditioned and changed by modern work. We yearn, we yearn for creativity and meaning. We want to leave behind something that lasts. We want to matter to others. We want to be, we want to be remembered. And we want to leave behind something tangible that affects people, that, that contributes to them. It's a totally understandable thing. And when we do that, we're mimicking God. We're mimicking the divine to make creative things, to leave meaning wherever we go. And so we're aspiring to a work that outlives us. A good work well completed is satisfying. There are small pleasures in toil. But that we have work at all is a gift, right? That we receive something from our work and some fruit of our labor, even if it's just in our salary and benefit scheme. That's a gift. But to have work at all is a gift. We are not entitled to any of the work that we have. We don't, we're not entitled to any of it. It could just as well be taken away. It is a gift. And so we receive it as a grace. Hard as that may be, accept. Take the words from um, the writer of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 3.22. There's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. So it's one of the clauses in that passage. There's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. It's so rare it's so rare, even in great jobs, right? And I've joked that um, you know, people will say, like, I would do this job even if they didn't pay me, which is not true. 100% lie every time you've ever heard it. I've maybe even said it before, right? What people are meaning is that really, I really love what I do. I can't believe I get to do that. What a wonderful benefit. That's not everybody. Not everyone is in that position. What a wonderful joy to be able to do something that you find enjoyable and that you get great satisfaction in. Here's, the, here's what you get to do. You get to serve others and help them. Your work is meant for others to enjoy or to contribute to the meaning of others, to find it more expansive. So our work is completed for the day, and we likewise find rest. We find rest in Sabbath. So rest, it turns out rest too is a discipline. So just like work is a discipline, not something we want to do necessarily, but we know we have to. That's the same thing for rest. All right, that rest too becomes a discipline. So last thing is related to communion. Just as Jesus has justified us in his death and resurrection, just as the gospel is life. And let me, let me just say, if that, that's not something you believe just yet, uh, hear that. The love of Christ is shed on the cross and his power of resurrection is available to you. And it's full of meaning and it's full of eternal purpose. Just as Jesus has justified us in his person, Christ has justified us, he's made us right with God, so all, all, all of our accomplishments encompassed 
and given meaning by Christ's accomplishments. Okay, we have any accomplishments at all because of what Christ has accomplished. We have work of any significance at all because of Christ's work. Right? So just as we're justified, so also are we sanctified. We're set apart by our work through the ongoing work of Christ Jesus. That's a truth that we get to hold on to and enjoy and appreciate, even in the toil of labor. Pray with me. God, we thank you for... Um, the salvation you've given us in your son, Christ Jesus. We thank you for our work. And we pray, Lord, for um, renewed hearts and for a renewed purpose. I pray for um, all here who um, suffer a great affliction, who are either underemployed or unemployed, and who suffer under the strain of that dislocation, or under the strain of meaninglessness. I pray you give them hope and peace and grant them um, employment and uh, grant them new work. We pray, Lord, you infuse our our work as it's given to us uh, with eternal purpose, and you help us again to see in clear sight that you mean for us to worship you, and you mean for us to serve in our labor. Help us to uh, accept and uphold our responsibility that you've given to us in work, and to enter into the discipline that you've assigned to us. We pray for our peace, we pray for our unity, and uh, for our joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.